My secret sauce is I think about how does this gathering help me subliminally influence my friends to be more aligned to the types of people I want to see in the world? How can I kind of like subconsciously influence my friends to behave more in alignment with the values that I think are important that people should have? Hey, what's up? Welcome to the Friendship Futurism Podcast, where we talk about friendships in the 22nd century. I'm your host, Bill May. Okay, so today we have a very special episode where the tables are turned. Instead of me interviewing a guest, I am the guest being interviewed. My friend Lisa Xia, who you may remember from episode 7, has hosted me on her podcast. This episode will be cross-posted to Lisa's podcast, Creative in Process. In this episode, you'll learn about how I subliminally influence my friends, why creativity is a skill and not based on luck, the future non-existent people I am most inspired by, and my number one tip to avoid getting replaced by AI. All right, Lisa, over to you. Hello, my friends. My name is Lisa, and welcome to Creative in Process, a podcast where I talk with everyday humans on what it means to be creative in the 21st century. I'm a creative who's worked in journalism and marketing. I love to speak, songwrite, dance, vlog. I love creativity because it fuels connection. So I've been excited to create this space where we get to explore together how being creative makes us more human. And today we're chatting with a fellow lover and gatherer of humans and one of the most vivacious, thoughtful people I know, Bill May. Bill is a published author, host of the FriendshipFuturism.com podcast, organizer of Learning Nights, a TED-like speaker series in Boston, and writes viral essays at BillMEI.net. Bill and I chat about the dark side of extroversion, why the most interesting conversations we have happen with people with different worldviews, how to subliminally and subconsciously influence our friends, how to host TED Talks about topics like the history of circumcision in your PJs, how our future kids can influence the way we live now, how to actually practice getting better at the creative process, and how a little bit of humor can save us from the massive boulders we're pushing in life. And of course, much, much more. Bill, Bill, Bill. There are so many true things about Bill that make us feel gathered, seen, and set free to live beyond socially prescribed boundaries, not just in the way we gather, but in the way we connect and do life together. That's why I am so excited for you to meet him. And friends, this is the first conversation I've taped live in person for the show. And my word, I have to say, there is still something more exhilarating about standing in a space together, particularly when you're talking about connection and creativity with a friend. So I'm really excited to dive in. Are you? Okay, let's do it. Welcome, Belle. Thanks so much for joining us. We are literally in the same building that we were in when we last spoke, and you are interviewing me for your podcast, which is Friendship Futurism. I think the way we met is a beautiful illustration of the future friendship 
It was at a mutual friend's social function. I literally exchanged maybe 10 minutes of conversation with you. And the next thing I know is on your podcast. I feel like this isn't the first or second or 10th time you've been doing this kind of stuff. Just meeting up with friends of friends and bringing people together. That was the case at your birthday party. And it's the case in a lot of things you host. So I would love to hear how this passion of yours came to be. Yeah, for sure. I think it was really interesting because I could tell you were an interesting person right away. And that's how... Uh, I think we connected so well immediately in the conversation that we had because we were able to get such interesting insights so quickly. Like I knew we were going to have a good conversation and then we did. Right. And so part of it is I just try to seek out what makes people fun and interesting. That is how I get people together. But, you know, why I'm passionate about this, it's my biggest superpower as well as my greatest weakness, which is extroversion. Um, Yeah. Obviously, extroversion is an amazing superpower for always talking all the time and getting to know people. Um, and it's my greatest weakness because because you get your energy from talking to other people. When you don't have other people around, you get into this negative death spiral of depression of not talking to anyone. Being in an extrovert-biased world, like I hear a lot of introverts wanting to be extroverts, but the advantage that you have as an introvert is that you don't have these death spirals that an extrovert can get into. Some introverts feel better when they hear me say that. So I will just say that out loud. For everyone who's listening. For everyone who is more introverted. introverted. Yes. When you feel and experience that so deeply about life, does that translate into relationships too? I think um, I naturally bias towards people who have strong takes on things, right? Because like, if you have a stake in the ground and are are willing to, to defend it, you know, I think that just naturally makes you a more interesting person. It makes me more want to engage with you, right? Otherwise, right. it's like being in a partner dance, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you, there has to be a action and reaction. You can't just like get into a conversation where the other person just agrees with you all the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, I always look for like interesting interactions. You know, when I find interesting people, it's like instant friends. I think I want to pick up on that because it sounds like you just, you like all sorts of energy. People who exude passion and interest and commitment and dedication to whatever it is that you can engage with, like something you can understand, learn about, shoot back and forth, argue about, all sorts of ways of interacting. And I think that's really special about you because it's not like Boston is a culture where people are really laid back when it comes to academia, professional world stuff, but you have a different way of navigating that scene. Like you host learning nights, for example, where you bring together, you know, different speakers that may not be PhD doctorate level or have like a million Nobel prizes, like a visible social title. You ask people based on what you know they're passionate about, the things that might draw you into first conversation about with them. Like, is that something that's natural to you? Being drawn to people in different facets of them, not just title names uh, yeah. and stuff. How has that part come to be for you? I never really had any respect for authority, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so formal titles or um, external displays of accomplishment or things, like they, they were just always meaningless to me. Even in my own life, I, I noticed times in my life, let's say career, for example, when I would pursue things specifically because I thought it was like, this is a high status company to work for, or this is like a cool you know degree to work towards. Anytime I was making steps towards that, I, I felt that that was wrong for me. It, it just felt that I was not being who I truly was. 
And so I've always just had an allergy towards striving for things that are not what I actually care about. Mm-hmm. Going back to maybe the original thing that you opened with, which is like kind of who I connect with and who I don't connect with. It's the people I connect with are people who have a strong idea of their place in the world and what they want out of it. The people I don't get along with are people who you kind of want things only because other people want them. Yeah. Right. And not because you yourself want them. It's something that I've noticed also in my life. It's very dangerous, especially growing up, because it's very easy and encouraged to do things because other people are doing them, not because you necessarily want to do them. Um, Like I went to business school, right? And it's like, when you go to business school, everyone, when they first come into business school, it's like, well, you know, we want to learn about business. We want to learn about how the world works. Maybe we want to make an impact, you know? And then by like year two, it's like everyone wants to do the same four jobs in accounting, investment banking, Mm -hmm. or like audit, or like, you know, management consulting. If you don't plant a flag on like, this is what I value, right? Your values end up getting shaped by the people around you. And then suddenly you find yourself wanting things that you never wanted yeah, and valuing things that you don't value because you haven't had a strong opinion on like, this is what I value and are, are willing to defend that. Yeah. It's, I mean, you didn't say this, but I heard confidence, commitment to what you want to do in the world, how you want to shape the world. But I also heard, because I think it's correlated with open-mindedness, just people who are willing to be shaped in meaningful ways by people around them, right? right? Because you can't be connected to all sorts of different people from all different sorts of backgrounds based on a value system they have that's interesting, unless you're also open-minded. I think, actually, that's a great point, right? Because I think when you think of open-mindedness, you think of it as like, you're influenced by the people around you. But I, I think there's a difference between that and like, Open-mindedness in the sense that, like, I really value diversity of the people around me in their worldviews and what they value and what they believe, and especially if it's different from my own values and beliefs, right? Because if I'm in this environment where there is no diversity, right, where, like, everyone wants to do investment banking, well, guess what? I'm going to feel like I'm a failure if I don't do investment banking. That diversity piece is so important to me because it is a counterweight against getting locked in these like fierce battles for things that don't matter. Mm-hmm. Going back to your background, I heard a lot of depth there. I, I felt like you were really shaped by that. Taking that and noticing what that looked like in business school as a case study, it immediately reminded me of politics and the, the mm-hmm. jaded side of political engagement where people sign up in year one to be governor or be on Congress and then later on start to become overwhelmed by the system, needing to play the game of being liked and promising things ahead of time that they wouldn't otherwise do under pressure. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's so true of so many different entities in our current culture in terms of going in clear-headed and open-minded and then coming out a lot more tired and under the weight of Mm -hmm. uncontrollable forces. So I, I love that you talk about the counterweight, finding people that are just all over the place naturally prevents you from being too caught up in that spiral. Does that transfer into the job that you chose? It's really funny because I, I worked for a finance company. And then even yeah. before that, I uh, worked for a different finance company. Okay. Um, so, uh, so I say investment banking out of the love of my heart because I, I actually really love investment bankers. And they're actually some of my friends. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I actually do really enjoy finance. The challenge with investment banking specifically is that a lot of people... Again, they go into it because of the status or the money. There's some 
thing that they want out of it that isn't because they enjoy the job. And I'm in finance because I enjoy the job, not yeah. because, you know, I thought it would be easy money. People would think I'm cool for working at a specific company or whatever. Mm-hmm. I thought I think it's hilarious that so many people around you seem like they went into finance for the wrong reasons, but you actually went into finance at the end anyway, but because you actually enjoy it. Right, yeah. Kind of wish I enjoyed it. <laughs> like Also, I think buy side people are just more chill to define buy side and sell side. Buy side is when you are a purchaser of investments, right? Like you want to put money into an investment and then hopefully make a return and then make money from that investment. And then sell side is you're on the opposite side of the table, right? Like you have some project or investment and you're trying to seek funding from other people. I think the difference is that when you're on the buy side, your ultimate value is truth, right? Like you want to make sure the decisions you're making are true and are as closely aligned to reality as possible. And you're trying to seek the truth as much as you can. But if you're on the sell side, you're, you're doing the totally opposite thing, right? You, sometimes you're trying to obscure the truth because the truth might make your investment look bad and then you're not getting as much money because of that. And so there's this kind of a lightly adversarial dynamic going on. Because on the sell side, it's like you have to kind of like paint things as like better than they are or like talk about an investment as if it were good, even if you truly knew deep down it wasn't. That's maybe the main difference and maybe why I think on the buy side, it's just a much healthier environment. I think I'm going to take this and use it as a very interesting metaphor for dealing with people. In life, there are buy side and sell side people, right? Where you you go about it with different value systems, but you're mm-hmm. essentially working toward the same goal, quote unquote, or like for the same purpose. I know you don't probably wouldn't be naturally attracted to sell side people in terms of spending a lot of time together or allowing them to influence you very much mm-hmm. but when you do have to work with them or when you do have to deal with that circle of 30 friends where the one friend that you were really loving brought a lot of sell side people to your party. Sure. How do you interact with those people? How do you encourage other people to know how to engage with people on the opposite side? Sure. Yeah. I think everybody has something that you can learn from them. Not everyone may be good at communicating what they're all about, you know, but then it's my job to kind of figure them out. To use your example, right? Like somebody who, let's say like your job is like marketing or selling things that maybe you don't necessarily believe is in the best interest of the people buying them. That still takes a lot of skill and I can still appreciate that skill, right? Because I also enjoy marketing and sales and all of that. And really that is, I think, the ultimate skill that not only is like useful, but something that society needs more of. People who can like take ideas that are undervalued and like communicate them. We as a species have gotten to a level where I think we are pretty smart enough about a lot of things. It's less about like we need to be smarter about things. It's more about like how do we take the things that we already know to work and convince the broad population that those things do actually work and like get support for things that we know will improve the trajectory of humanity. I can pick that out as something I appreciate. No matter who I meet, it's like I can try to like pick out what are the things that I can appreciate that maybe I didn't appreciate before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a really solid core value that is a lot easier said than done. Oh, very much easier said than done. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just over here like that sounds so pretty and I don't do that a lot. (laughs) I don't do it as much as I would like to either. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's a mindset, right? It's yeah. still a mindset that you want to apply more of. It sounds like a growth mindset and it sounds like open-mindedness. What you described with the marketing, the ability to influence people mm-hmm. and call them to action in a positive direction. We'll talk about like the betterment of humanity later in our Can't conversation. Wait. But I wanted to bring us back to gatherings. I want you to actually explain Learning Night. Sure. What is Learning Night? So Learning Night is a monthly speaker series that I host in Boston. Um, but we have several chapters in Panama City, Tokyo, Singapore, San Francisco Bay Area. So this is an organization that a couple of my friends started several years ago. As they graduated and spread around the world, uh, the Learning Night spread with them. I was actually only just a regular old attendee at Learning Night. You know, I loved it. I kept coming back as an attendee. Then when I moved to Toronto, I helped to co-host the Toronto chapter. And so now, now that I'm in Boston, I'm hosting the Boston chapter. The way it works, uh, it's like TED Talks. By your friends, except in their pajamas at my home. And there are 15-minute talks with five minutes of Q&A. Usually we have three speakers every night. And I think the secret sauce to Learning Night is just that the topics are very diverse. For example, we had Learning Night talks like history of circumcision, how to build a particle accelerator at home. At our last Learning Night, we had uh, my friend Helen, who is legally blind, give a talk about what it's like to be legally blind. And so I think the point of having all of these different topics and different speakers, especially in the same night, is that it attracts a very broad and diverse crowd. And I find that like when you have people from all these different worldviews and shove them into the same room, that's when the most interesting conversations happen. I've consistently been told, like, Bill, I just always have the best conversations at Learning Night because of that reason. People from different walks of life together who, importantly, are very curious and value this like open-mindedness and learning new things that I think is just really magical. And I think that's why I love learning nights. That's great. Sounds like there's so much beautiful coordination across so many different locations, very similar things happening in so many different places. It was really encouraging. And I think that ties into my next question where you said the secret sauce to learning night is bringing all these sorts of people together and like probably pajamas involved is also part of the sauce because a lot of people like to do that and not, you know, dress up in a suit and go to a TED talk. But I wanted to hear more about what you think the secret sauce is for gathering a group of people for Mm. any reason. For people who are, you know, being challenged to do that. I referred to Priya Parker, who wrote The Art of Gathering, because- Great book. Yeah, I loved that book. But she said, asking what the purpose is helps you to define the people you want to bring into a space. And she talks about it at a very micro level, her and a group of friends and choosing which friends to invite to what, for what purpose. So like if you're Mm -hmm. grieving a loss or if you want to celebrate the arrival of your new carpet, because that was the most exciting thing that happened during COVID, that dictates who you invite and don't. And it's not always your best friends, but certain people are just built to come around for different purposes. It sounds like learning nights has just this really broad purpose of bringing all sorts of different people together So yeah, if you want to use that as an example to speak to or just speak to whatever experiences come to mind, what's the secret sauce or what's the art of gathering for Bill? Oh, totally. So I think there's two answers to this. The first is a successful gathering as an attendee. And then the second is a successful gathering as a host, um, because those can be two separate things. So I'll, I'll start with the attendee. Events that I go to that I enjoy as an attendee are ones where I, I just feel seen and listened to, that I feel present at as a human being, right? I think the reason, at least for me, that I think that is the 
secret sauce of what makes a good gathering in general is that when we gather, it is to be in that present moment with our fellow human beings to share our humanity, however that might look like, whether that's at learning night, whether that's at a running group running up the stairs, whether that's doing a birthday party, like whatever it is that you're gathering for as an attendee. Like, I just want to feel like whenever I'm in this conversation, I feel heard and listened to and accepted as part of this group. Because look, if I just wanted to like go watch a talk, do running or go to the gym, like I could just do all those things myself, Mm -hmm. right? In fact, it's probably more effective if I do them myself. If I'm going to hang out with other people, I want to really be in that shared humanity. That's what's important. Whereas like all those external exterior things, just get them from the internet. That's why, like, at Learning Night also, like, I always tell speakers, like, you don't need to be an expert. You just need to be passionate because I'm not looking for, like, super highly polished talks or anything like, thing like that because that's not the point for me. You know, I don't want people to feel like there's this kind of minimum bar that they have to meet. That would be the antithesis of being seen and heard. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and then I think the secret sauce as a host is for a gathering, at least for gatherings I host, my secret sauce is I think about how does this gathering help me subliminally influence my friends to be more aligned to the types of people I want to see in the world? How can I kind of like subconsciously influence my friends to (laughs) behave more in alignment with the values that I think are important that people should have? And so an example of this is like at my birthday, right? I did a game show where I basically asked people a bunch of questions. It was like, so you think you know Bill? And like, here's random trivia facts about Bill. And like, you would have to answer all these obscure things like how many toenails does Bill have? There's a very important twist I put into that, which is in a traditional game show, you kind of compete. You're trying to rack up points of like seeing how many questions you can answer. And I said, the winner of the game show is not the person who gets the most points. It is the person who helps the most other people get the most points. That's my effort at subconsciously influencing people to be more helpful. When I put together a gathering, it's like I am assembling an orchestra of all of my beautiful friends who all play unique and interesting and different instruments. And as a conductor, I'm trying to like coordinate this and together we can produce this symphony and this amazing, beautiful song that no one person could have done individually. But as a group, we have now accomplished. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to that that I think is really empowering and inspiring, right? Because when you first said subconsciously influence my friends, I got nervous. (laughs) How do I (laughs) apply some secret ninja tactics and change? The way that they uh, they do their life. They call them secret sauces because they yeah. usually don't talk about the sauce. That's right. I'm really glad that after you gave me a taster of the sauce that I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about people who have gathered you. You know, I see you as someone who works really well in a lot of different situations. So I'm just curious, people who've brought you into situations in your life where you felt loved and seen and gathered. Yeah, so this was uh, at a outdoors club I was participating in back when I lived in the SF Bay area through the uh, UC Berkeley's hiking club. And I just, I love my time there. And so this wasn't any specific person, but just the people I've met and like, you know, people who are into the outdoors, I think generally are just good, respectful, responsible people. You kind of have to be when you're faced up against nature like that. So, I mean, I just had really great memories from that Mm -hmm. time period and just having some of the most present conversations with people and in the environment that we're in too, like deep in the woods away from civilization mm-hmm. kind of engenders that. And also, you know, spending like hours upon hours with yeah. people without electronics is also one way of doing that. 
who are some influencers and movers and shapers in your life, especially people who have influenced you to value these sorts of things that you're doing now? The people who have shaped my values are my kids. Uh, so I do not have kids, um, but I am keeping in mind basically the values that my future kids have both influenced on me and that I want to impart on them, right? Because I think kids are like sponges and they will absorb your energy and your values even if you don't intend to convey them. They don't necessarily listen to what you say, but how you mm -hmm. behave. Mm -hmm. Because that, that is important to me, I basically try to live in a way that is like, what are the values that I would like to impart on like my kids? Mm -hmm. By the time my kids are born, right? It's like I would have already been shaped into some type of person. It wouldn't be impossible, but it'd be harder to kind of change the trajectory of where I'm going and what my life is and what my values are at that point versus if I consciously try to like nudge that today. You know, it's like steering a giant ship around. If I try to make the steps today to make it so that I'm going in the right direction, then by that future point when I have kids with my future partner, you know, I'm already going in the direction that I want to go. I don't need to take this giant ship and, and realize, oh no, I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm going to crash into an iceberg. That is a very deeply and meaningfully held value. And it's a big ship to steer, even now, right? Like, yeah. how do you keep yourself accountable to someone who doesn't exist yet? And are there real people who help keep you accountable to your future influencing value of kids? Certainly my friends, right? Yourself included. You know, I just try to hang out with people who want the best for me and vice versa. Over my formative years, it would be my roommate Dave, actually. He, I think, was just a really strong influence on me. And he was one of the first people I really met who thought and behaved in a very different and empathetic way that was levels and levels beyond anyone had met at that point. And I just, I really still deeply, really respect him. He, I think, is the epitome of like, doesn't really care about status or like what other people think about him or like going along with like societal expectations and just like lives the kind of lifestyle that he wants and like is important to him. And so and it's not the type of life that I want. Right. But it's like he's been an influence on showing me that it's OK to put my flag in the ground and be like, this is what I value and live my life according to what I value. I'm so glad because I know for me, I can hold on to also my future ship of kids that don't exist and really want that. But I think it's extremely freeing and empowering to have a living, breathing example of a, a human being who is living in that way. Just because you mentioned having kids too, mm -hmm. and clearly that's a value for you and something you're looking forward to at some point later on. I wanted to talk to you about how that ties to the way you grew up as a kid and Family is a mixed bag for me and also potentially uh -huh. for you in terms yeah. of what you've received from them. So I would just love to hear how growing up shaped you and how you relate to your family these days. Sure. I think it was certainly very tough as a kid. I have a great relationship with my family now. I think because of COVID, living with my parents, and I just spend a huge amount of time with them throughout that period. I think also just, you know, being able to help them out, going and getting groceries for them, really seeing them as an adult from a side that I don't think I would have had an opportunity to if it wasn't for the fact that I was living at home for COVID. It really helped strengthen the relationship there. 
Yeah, but I think growing up, again, this goes all the way back to our first conversation about doing things because I I value them and not because money or status, whatever. Obviously, you know, being immigrant parents, they wanted me to make money, right? That was important for survival, obviously. And that wasn't the wrong decision. I think as a first generation immigrant family, you know, you want to be established, you want to be financially stable. You want to make sure that your sacrifice had been worth it, obviously. Uh, I realize that now as an adult, as a kid, I think I just didn't consider my parents' perspective. And so my received experience was essentially this, I wouldn't really call it pressure, but just more like a value system that kind of valued these external signs of success, which I never personally valued, right? So that's, I think that's where most of the clashes came from. Having matured and having spent a lot of time with my parents and like talking through a lot of these things as an adult now, I think has helped a lot for, for my relationship. I mean, to be honest, a large part of it also is because I've achieved a level of financial success that my parents don't feel like that's an issue anymore. I think it would be a very different conversation if I don't have a stable job, right? Or, is, mm-hmm. you know, some, or are on a path to that. I think a combination of those things is kind of where, where we're at. Yeah. Age, being an immigrant, culture differences, mm. even after decades, have incredible influence still. And I say that in part because I know it's a mixed bag for my parents and, and me. Values don't always align and clash a lot, especially second generation, first generation, but also just in terms of their upbringing, their religion, their socioeconomic background that they started off in. Would you say that your parents have grown with you through those interactions? Has it felt more like they now approve because, okay, Bill's finally gotten stability financially? Or do you feel like they've sort of absorbed some of your values or maybe have considered things differently in terms of the person that you've become? I think my parents have gotten more chill over the years, but I I don't think it's necessarily me that's influenced them. Again, I think we all mature and grow. You know, there's no reason why you should be maturing between 10 and 20 and not be maturing between your 40s and 50s. I have seen them change. Not really sure what the uh, root cause of that is. Mm. It's pretty similar for for my parents where they spend a lot more time with their social community than they do with me. Yeah. And maybe COVID was different for many of us because we had that concentrated time to appreciate family, especially from a long distance if we don't normally live with them, which a lot of us in Boston don't. So yeah, I think it's just helpful to appreciate that they are their own human beings with their own decades of opportunities for growth. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about your undergrad thesis. Oh, yes. You could have started this podcast with that thesis. How to get more creative. And you talked about strategies successful entrepreneurs use to find breakthroughs. What was something that struck you personally as you were doing this research? Yeah. Um, So the thing that surprised me the most as I was doing the research was that creativity is not an accident. It is something you can consciously get better at. And I think the reason it was surprising to me is we kind of have this image of like, you know, Archimedes in his bathtub, like shouting Eureka and like running naked down the streets of Athens. And, you know, even the stories that we tell of like people coming up with ideas like that light bulb moment, just the cliches and the ways that we describe how inspiration comes to us. It's not coming from something inside of us. That framing, not only is it wrong, I think it is doing a disservice to people who want to be creative because if you've never 
felt that like moment of inspiration, you might think, oh, I'm just not a creative person. It's never come to me. You know, these are the kind of limiting beliefs I hear people say when you believe that creativity is this external thing that's coming to you rather than a specific process that you can get better at, just like learning how to get better at math or learning how to lift weights. It's, it's a iterative step-by-step process that you can invest time in. To get better at creativity, there's a kind of a couple of steps. There's preparation, incubation, inspiration, and production. I'll focus just on the preparation and inspiration side. So preparation essentially is the step zero is you have to spend a lot of time thinking about and working on the problem that you're trying to solve. The example I use in my thesis is there were doctors at the Great Ormond Street Hospital who were having a crisis because their kids were dying. And this was a children's hospital. You know, it's keeping kids alive is like their job. And so these doctors had been trying to like look at every part of their medical procedure and trying to figure out like, why are these kids in the ICU dying? What's happening? And it wasn't until one day when there were two doctors who were just sitting in the break room watching Formula One on the TV, because it just happened to be on, that they had their quote unquote light bulb moment, which is that most of the fatalities were happening when the kids were being transferred from the intensive care unit into some other area of the hospital. That's when medical mistakes started happening. They realized that the pit stops in Formula One pretty much mirrored exactly what a medical transfer looked like, you know, Mm. because they would have to have this person strapped to all this medical equipment, unplug everything, move them to a different room, and then plug them all in again. Just like when the car comes into the pit stop, you got to remove all the wheels, feel the car, put all the wheels back on, and then they drive off. Mm -hmm. You know, but if you try to drive off without your wheels, you're going to have problems. Mm -hmm. The team basically contacted Formula One and learned a lot about how pit stops work at Formula One and applied those same principles to the hospital. So, for example... In race car driving, there's someone called the, the lollipop man, right? Which is the person essentially responsible for, does the car stop or does the car go, right? And that is their only job. You know, they're not distracted by other things. They're not trying to refuel the car. That's somebody else's job. Every person at the pit stop had one job and they would learn how to do that job well and not be distracted by like, oh, well, now I have to like walk over and do this other thing. And they took those same principles, applied that to the hospital so that when the medical team needs to transfer a patient, from the ICU to a different part of the hospital, every person in the medical team knew what their job was, knew what it was in advance, and could perform that job and not be thinking about, well, here's five other things that maybe we need to check on. Due to that, they were able to greatly reduce the number of kids who were dying at that hospital. So I think this story highlights a couple things. First is that Although looking at Formula One and getting that insight seemed like it just was magical, came out of nowhere. Remember, these doctors have been working on this problem for months, right? It wasn't just they just sat in the break room one day and then realized that they could use the same techniques as the pit crew. From that preparation, from that hard work, that they were then priming themselves to receive information that was somehow similar to this problem. If that problem had not been top of mind, they would have just watched the Formula One game, be like, great, that's a fun thing to watch on TV and then not really thought twice about it. That preparation, I think, is step zero of that creative process. Just getting so deep into that problem that it's top of mind and it's something that you're always thinking about, that you make yourself open to these other solutions. You know, you then need to be open to other solutions. And so that means setting aside time to not just always be like, okay, we're going to grind and we're going to hard work, but have these moments of like stepping back and unstructured time where you 
do a lot of different things and like meet interesting different people and like listen to new ideas that you might not have heard of before because those creative insights come from all these different sources of knowledge and different worldviews. It all comes together, the diversity, the creativity, looking at different worldviews, it's all related. Yeah. You did this to me during our podcast uh-huh. chat last time, asking me what my dark side was. So now I've already <laughs> given you a prompt. So you've got to give me a good answer to this. What's your dark side, Bill? Ooh. I think my dark side is I try very hard. I'm a try hard. I, I try very, very, very hard. <laughs> um, and I think uh, like an example of this is graduating with a business degree and then in like three months, like learning how to code and then getting a job, right? Or like going to Spain on exchange and like learning Spanish to conversational fluency, like not hanging out with any of the friends I came with on exchange because they all spoke English and I wanted to speak Spanish. Just having that intensity of like, here's something I want to accomplish and I will not stop until I accomplish that. Even learning night, after the last learning night, one of our friends asked, she was like, Bill, how much time did you spend on this? And I was like, Wow, actually, now that I think about it, I spent maybe like 50 hours on this. Mm-hmm. And when you when I say it out loud like that, that's a huge amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I never considered how much time I spent on it. I think I try hard because I care, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, and for the things I don't care about, I don't try at all. Yeah, it, it sounds very similar to your answer of the core of living as an extrovert where you are like super happy with people, but then also have death by night kind of experiences. <laughs> sure. And don't really spend much time in between those extremes. Either you try really hard or you just don't do it. So I think I can relate to that. Although I do think about how much time I spend planning things that I care about. It's just very sobering for me. I'll drive this to our last question now. Because we talked about the future of humanity and bettering humanity in the beginning, I'm especially curious to get your views on this topic, quality of being, that I ask everybody at the end of the episode, where it's really an interesting term for me because people talk about quality of living and there's lots of metrics and research and data behind quality of life and why that's important for health and sleeping and aging and general well-being. But the internal being side of Mm -hmm. what does that do to your humanity and who you are as a person, I heard you touch on that when you were talking about subtly influencing your friends through the things you gather and host. So I'd love to hear what quality of being evokes when you hear that, wherever you want to take that. Uh, For me, it's just being really freaking silly. Uh, My favorite Wikipedia article is Ignore All Rules. Uh, It's about how if there's a rule that prevents you from improving Wikipedia, you should ignore that rule. That's how I think about my life too. It's like, you know, I always, I just love doing random stuff for no reason because there doesn't need to be a reason, you know? Mm. That's when I feel the most alive, you know? I think it's also important because as we advance into this era of the AIs doing everything for us, uh, AIs and the machines can only do the things that they've been shown to do in the past or that we've programmed them to do. What they can't do is something totally random and different. If there ever was a last shred of humanity, it would be us saying poop jokes in the night. Did you just come up with that? Yeah, it's totally random. (laughs) I love that because... It is kind of a part of the future of work conversation too. You know, hashtag future of work came up so much more after COVID. They mentioned as AI is replacing humans and humans are starting to feel threatened by AI, humans are considering, especially at their workplace, how to become more human because AI can't do that. And AI can become a 
really poor artificial representation of a human that can essentially replace the core elements of what make us human. And I believe that randomizing the crap in the night out of whatever (laughs) you want Literally, yeah, because of your poop. Yes, um, <laughs> that's right. Which is also just a great conversation starter. Is a great part of being more human. I think you mentioned being on autopilot in yes. our culture mm-hmm. really prevents us from doing. Personally, how do you balance poop in the night with your intense fifty well, hour being, being effective? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to answer that question because I'm going to be random. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because I, I think it's like if you if you try to the, be too strategic, right? That's like you're just executing this algorithm, you know. And you're not, you're never going to execute an algorithm better than computer can, mm-hmm. you know. So it's about kind of flipping the table and like not doing algorithms and just standing on your head because you feel like it. But I am genuinely curious. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For my personal growth reasons too, like I want to absorb what other people do that helps them to escape. The grind of right, yes. machines and systems. To be clear, like I don't think there's anything wrong with doing the grind, quote unquote, or whatever, right? You know, it's like if my job was pushing the boulder of Sisyphus up the hill, you know, it's a difference between pushing the boulder and complaining about it versus pushing the boulder and having a smile on my face and being like, yeah, I'm going to tell jokes while I'm doing it. So it, it doesn't change the fact that I'm still pushing the boulder, you know, mm-hmm. but, but one's just more enjoyable if I can just make fun of the fact that I'm doing it. If pushing the boulder is a required activity for whatever reason, either because it accomplishes some goal I want to achieve or because it's like, I need to make money to survive or whatever. So there's, there's a couple of responses to any challenge like that, right? It's like, it's either the like, I don't want to do this. It's stupid. I'm going to go do something else. Or it's the like, well, it sucks, but I'm just going to have to do it. So I'm just going to grit my teeth and get through it, right? Or kind of the option that I would choose is... This is awesome because I get to push a huge boulder and that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So like, it's just, I guess, just reframing it from a job to a thing that you choose to do. I I simultaneously love that and feel like that sounds easier than I've ever made it sound because life is so hard. Like losing relationships, losing people or suddenly being haunted by nightmares from your childhood that you thought you were healing from or things just completely going off the wall with plans because you got a a terminal illness and that boulder, not necessarily like the Uh the going to work and grinding boulder, but the boulder of life just being life. It's a lot harder to imagine myself embracing that mindset when I think about like the really hard necessary things that happen in life. So So I'm, I'm just curious. What that looks like for different areas. So, so there's there's this comic I can show you, which is like, um, there's some like everyone has a hole in their chest for some inexplicable reason. Some people try to fill it at all costs. They try to fill it with relationships or with food or with money. Um, they try to fill the hole, but it, it never works because it just falls out the other side, you know. And then in the comic, the narrator is like, "But what I've learned is that when I run really fast against the wind, the hole makes a great whooshing sound." There's really not much that I can add to that. <laughs> nice. But thanks so much for doing this with me, Bill. Thank you for inviting me. Planned. I loved turning the tables on you and going to some pretty profound, unexpected places in this conversation. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you so much. I have to say that for me, the showstopper in this conversation was when Bill looked me in the eye in the middle of our chat and told me that the people who influence him most in life are his kids, the kids in his life who aren't born yet. 
it's one of those rare moments that completely stops an energetic little firecracker like me dead in my tracks and helps me to just stop and appreciate how beautiful some truths really are in life. And Bill reminds us today that we can hold values for both poop in the night jokes and a dream to leave this world better for our children all at once. So today, at the same time, we are out changing the world. Let's also take a breath. Maybe choose to dance in our underwear for a bit longer. Wear socks on our ears in the safety and privacy of our own home during lunch break or belly flop into our beds tonight, all in honor of our friend, Bill. You can follow Bill on Instagram at billmay.net, Bill, M-E-I-D-O-T-N-E-T, or join the email list for events at billmay.net forward slash follow. Again, this is Lisa, and thanks for joining me for this conversation of creative and process. I'll have new episodes up every month, so be sure to follow and stay tuned. Also, I'd love it if you could leave me a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It just helps me know what I do well and how to make this space even better for listeners like you. Oh, and also, happy official spring. Yay. Okay, friends, talk to you again really soon. Yo, it's Bill. Thanks for listening. Uh, I really love getting feedback from you. So tell me about what you enjoyed, any constructive comments that you might have. Go to billmay.net. That's B-I-L-L-M-E-I.net. And send me an email. I read every message. According to my stats, only 1% of my listeners have left a review. So if you haven't left a review yet, you can open up iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and submit one. And I'll do a special shout out to you. This is also super helpful to get other people to find the show. Subscribe to the show at friendshipfuturism.com to subscribe to the email list, to get access to events, curated writing, and to join the community. All right, looking forward to your reviews and comments. See you next time.